Welcome to the ITE Talks Transportation Podcast from the Institute of Transportation Engineers. Each month, we'll bring you conversations with thought leaders in transportation on the future of the industry. Thank you for joining us on the ITE Talks Transportation Podcast. I'm your host, Bernie Wagenblast. In conjunction with the release of the new ITE Parking Generation Manual, the theme of the February issue of the ITE Journal is parking. Our guest this month is the author of one of the articles in the issue, The Transformation of the Parking Industry, Michael Klein. Michael is the founder and CEO of Klein & Associates. Mike, welcome to ITE Talks Transportation. Hello, Bernie. It's my pleasure to be here with you. We're going to be talking, obviously, about parking, but in particular, we're going to be talking about the article you recently wrote in the ITE Journal. And at first glance, when you talk about parking, if you're not really into the business, it might seem like a a fairly straightforward business. But as you noted in that article in the ITE Journal, there's been a, a tremendous shift in the parking industry over the last few decades, both in terms of how parking is generated and regulated, as well as how practitioners are approaching their job. Tell us a bit about some of the significant elements of this evolution and those that stand out to you, if you would, please. Thanks, Bernie. Well, first of all, I'd I'd say it's even revolutionary. I I think that we've moved so fast in such a short time, it's nothing short of a revolution. And I think the reason for that is primarily related to advances in technology. Those of us that are a little bit nerdy, uh, we've got a little engineering (laughs) population here, might be familiar with Moore's Law. Mm -hmm. And we're looking at a tremendous increase in computing power in the time that this industry has has gone through this revolution. And and I think that's the focus. I think there are other uh, elements that moved at the same time that while we were getting the technology and the ability to do things and disrupt things, we also had changes in society that made people a little bit more receptive. When I was early in the business, I used to tell these stories to my family, and you never saw anything anywhere about it. But then it moved into the media. It moved into seeing something on television. And I started realizing that the things that we were talking about in the back rooms were actually starting to move to the planning rooms and to what we're doing. Mm -hmm. So we started to look at just a new way of doing transportation that are dealing with densities and congestion issues and sustainability, environmental impacts. So you have a whole culture change, a technological change, societal changes, and we had no choice but to have that revolution. Well, when you talk about that kind of revolution, that's what has happened. But looking ahead, do you see that kind of revolutionary changes continuing? Oh, we're in the knee of the curve, Bernie. It's going to get worse, <laughs> if you want to call it worse. <laughs> I think it's better because I grab at change. I enjoy change. Mm-hmm. I'm not in the future shock Alvin Toflu world where I can't, I can't cope with the change. On the other hand, you know, I'm not a switchboard operator who lost their job or a ballet who's going to lose their job or a cashier who's going to lose their job or a bus driver who's going to lose their job. So we are looking at, I'm going to say that the 20th century was the age of the automobile, and the 21st century in our industry is going to be the age of access. 
Well, as I mentioned in the opening of the podcast, ITE had recently released Parking Generation 5th Edition. I'm sure that was in part what prompted uh, your article in the ITE Journal. It documents current peak parking demand for various land uses. How do you anticipate land use-based parking demands are going to change in the future with the emergence of things like transportation network companies and continued changes in, in both the retail and employment industries? Once again, it's this change at an ever-increasing rate that we're getting. The strange thing is it does not appear looking backwards 50 years. The number of cars per American is not changing, at least not yet. Mm -hmm. But as municipalities and other demand generators start looking at alternative access systems, and also as people change their behaviors because of new ways we can do things and new choices... We are going to get real changes in street regulation that will support more choices, more, more mode choices for people so that they can kind of deal with this, this real challenge of how to use our land in, in the smartest way. When you talk about the real estate community and they talk about highest and best use, I don't think many of us think highest and best use of curb spaces is to park cars and have them sit there not doing anything except taking away valuable real estate. So I, I do think we're going to see a lot of changes. I think we're going to see more use of market forces instead of rationing. So as land use changes at the zoning level, at the developer level, and at the human level, we're going to see a lot of changes in the philosophy. Right now, we subsidize car parking tremendously that's going to change because it's, it's not economic. And as we go through population growth and more challenges, we're just not going to be able to afford to have so much waste, right? Cars sit for 95% of the time, right? And now with rideshare services, we're getting more congestion because they're circling. So we, we're going to get new answers, and they're going to be more synergistic, and there's going to be much more, many options to single occupancy vehicle use, uh, more so than we have now. You mentioned before you're not a valet, you're not a cashier, so you in some ways are not directly affected by some of these changes. But the, the parking industry as a whole, do you think they are embracing these changes or are they fighting these kinds of changes? I think at the strategic levels, there's acceptance and planning and efforts underway. On the other hand, at the basic operational level, people resist change. So it's a dichotomy. Mm -hmm. And it will play out at the strategic level, and there will be pain at the base level. I'll give you an example. When I was the executive director of the Albany Parking Authority, we made a very specific decision to tell our staff, automation was coming, and that we were going to completely change all job descriptions. We were going to give career ladders, and there would be less jobs available altogether. We stopped hiring full-time employees and started hiring part-time employees so that we could have turnover, gradual turnover of full-time employees because we had a commitment to them. And then in the final stage before we fully automated, we only hired temps. We didn't even hire part-time people. And the result of that was several internal staff members were advanced so that they could run 
camera banks, monitoring things, being an office person and taking place of three to five cashiers, and give better customer service because they were well-trained. So we have less people in more thinking positions is what I think is happening. And organizations that care for their people will find a way to migrate there with the least amount of pain. But the real question is what's going to happen on a societal level? And I'm not taking a step at that one, Bernie. <laughs> well, when you talk about that, I, I was going to ask you about the, the law of unintended consequences. Uh, as we talk about major policy changes and new technology coming along, sometimes what we anticipate happening may happen, but there are those things that we never anticipated. Do you see any of that playing out with this? Oh, absolutely. I can probably think of one or two quick ones. I remember people telling me how wrong it was that the government will subsidize one of these wonder cars made by Tesla, and then those people who are extremely wealthy, because they can afford it, they get to park in the good spaces, they get to drive in the lane that's normally reserved for people with multiple people in the car. So you have the unintended consequence of the government supporting and companies advancing an agenda that it doesn't play out exactly the way it should. And so I'd really like to see something more like the inexpensive access systems that can serve many people work instead of these experiments that just kind of tease us a little bit and reward the wealthy instead of supporting the poor. And I know that's a little bit, a little bit off topic, but I, I see some real issues there. I see access issues for more and more people who are in an economic pinch. So that, that's my little soapbox there for you, Bernie. <laughs> okay. Going back to your, your ITE Journal article, for that, you interviewed several industry experts. What did you find were some of the biggest takeaways from your conversations with those folks? Well, first of all, that was probably the best part of the whole article, was I had the opportunity to talk and correspond with six of the most knowledgeable people in the space, and I, I do want to recognize them. Don Shoup, probably one of the most famous people in the industry, author of The High Cost of Free Parking, and more recently, Parking in the City. I was honored to be asked to write a chapter in that book, by the way. Sean Conrad, the CEO of what was formerly IPI, and now they've added mobility to their name, so it's IPMI. Also moving through the trade associations, Christine Banning, the president of the National Parking Association. John Van Horn, responsible for parking today and the parking industry exhibition. Todd Littman, executive director of the Victoria Transport Policy Institute. And also Paul Wessel the director of ParkSmart, um, administering the green business certification. It was great to be in touch with all these folks that I've known uh, for years. The best takeaway was how similar and complementary the perspectives were. It's all about curb control for most of these people recognize that that's where we have our greatest challenges at the curb and our greatest opportunity. Mm -hmm. uh, at the same time, there's a recognition of changes in mobility options for people, that we have a much broader environment than we used to have, one where it's not parking, it's not transportation, and it's, it's not any one piece. It's the entire access system, it's alignments, it's having things work in a frictionless environment 
where citizens at large, the public knows what their choices are and they can get what they want. And the final thing that I think everybody agreed on very strongly was that we really need to have a seat at the table. As more parking and transportation practitioners um, get more advanced training, more advanced degrees, communicate at uh, strategic levels, you know, we're, we're really making a difference. I'll give one example there. I'll give two examples. For the um, International Parking Mobility Institute, they combined with the British Parking Association and the European Parking Association to create the Alliance for Parking Data Standards. So now we can have a commonality platform to harvest and analyze information. At pretty much the same time, the National Parking Association did a very, very exciting study on an ecosystem approach to reduce uh, congestion. So we're really moving in the same direction, and there's a lot of traction for the topics being discussed. It was just uh, terrific to see that we're talking the same language. I want to continue a bit on on what you were talking there when you were talking about curbside management, and you mentioned uh, companies like Uber and Lyft and folks like that. As these demands increase for curbside use, and it's not just Uber and Lyft, but it's it's parking, transit, bicycle facilities, urban goods delivery. How do you see that changing as a result of companies like Uber and Lyft coming into the market, and how can practitioners adapt to these kinds of changes? Well, again, we're, we're in that rapid change environment. I mean, who would have predicted that Amazon would be delivering so many items to my door. I can't believe how many things I buy personally and my family buys from Amazon. Again, this is the type of situation where we're not talking about a reduction. Now, maybe we'll get drone deliveries, so we'll have problems (laughs) in the airspace for access. That'll be our next challenge. But I think the real takeaway is when we look at the change and we start planning for how to deal with it, we see that it really matters that we plan for the effective and efficient systems with what's really happening and what will be happening in the next decade or two. So we really have to prioritize our efforts and our modes that work for our local environment. So we need to address quality of life issues. We need to address economic growth and vitality challenges and opportunities. We're going to see changes that it's not one size fits all. It's going to be locale by locale, a region by region, state by state. I'll give you an example again. I like, I like examples. If I just had it in my power to snap my fingers and change the mobility options in Chicago, I would not focus on the bicycle mode. Mm-hmm. You know, I might want a little bit more friendly in bicycle mode, but it probably wouldn't be my number one choice in the Windy City it's very cold a lot of the year. I'm not saying bicycles don't belong there. I'm just saying when I'm in Amsterdam and into traffic, I understand why it's the bicycle capital of the world. It makes sense. We recommend prioritizing the mode locally or the modes locally that work for people, manage the curbs so that there are alignments. And the goal is to make the quality of life better and keep things running smoothly. I asked you before about how the parking industry is embracing or not embracing some of these changes. What about the public? Do you see them embracing this or resisting it? And I guess kind of going along with that, 
Is this something that might come about more through the free market like Uber and Lyft came about uh, really without government involvement when they first were launched? Or is it more something that's going to be a government policy change that's going to drive these kinds of changes? That's a very intriguing question. I was just reading something this morning from the MIT Download. It's a great source, by the way. And basically, the look there was that it will be technology limitations more so than regulatory uh, friction that will set the pace. And so I think the main thing is we're not looking at five or 10 years. We're looking at 10 or 20 years. And that's the difference is the time frame. Mm -hmm. So the technology will not quite be ready as quickly as we want. We're going to get some great experimental opportunities, you know, with, for example, with uh, the Department of Transportation providing incentives for cities to experiment and put together different packages, we're seeing options. We're getting, we're getting data. We're getting examples. So we're, we're moving there. We're getting some government support now, better than we used to. We're, again, advancing quickly in the technology curve. So I think all these things shake out together uh, in a way that it's just a matter of time frame more so than anything else. Uh, and meanwhile, we're, you know, we're, we're, we're getting examples from all over the world of what's working and what isn't. We're getting cities with no cars. It was Oslo, I believe. We're getting China as more cars than any other country on earth. Who would have expected that? And so with their top-down system, they'll probably be very advanced in the autonomous field because it will solve their congestion problems, which are much, much worse than in North America. So, again, country to country, place to place, time to time, it's a sliding scale. The crystal ball is not polished up enough for anything more on that one. <laughs> well, almost every day it seems that there are articles about how big data is being used, particularly in the transportation field, everything from planning to transportation management. What are some of the ways in which innovative data collection and analysis can be used when it comes to making parking decisions, everything from the planning stages to the end-user experience. I love it. You're asking a nerd who likes metrics <laughs> about, about the stuff he loves. I can almost tell what's going on in the local environment by seeing the data that comes out of the parking systems and the transportation systems. We are able to capture so much information now on people's movements, we can do origin and destination studies without anything except, you know, a, a couple of sensors and a cloud-based information system. All of these things are, are moving together in a fashion. Let me talk a little bit about big data in an exciting way. I mentioned earlier the creation of the Alliance for Parking Data Standards. That's big. Standardization is very big. Once we have that and are using it effectively, we're going to know more than we realize we know. It's like that story that the motivational speakers like to tell about the upset father at the drugstore because they're sending his daughter stuff to be a mother because they knew she was pregnant before he did. <laughs> it's data. The information is all embedded in the data. And so now we have companies that are moving out of the information technology field and into the parking and transportation field because they see such great opportunities. One of our problems 
our data is not clean. We have a lot of bad information um, nested inside some, a lot of good data. The data has to be cleaned. And so as these companies learn more about what we are and what we do, they're learning to abstract and clean the data so that we can have a good base of information from which we can make predictions and we can make better decisions. And there was a time when we were using algorithms to figure things out. Now we're using machine learning. And so the advances in the data collection and analysis space is another of these areas that's going to be high growth, high return, very valuable. We don't know what we don't know, but some of these systems can tell it to us, even though we don't know it. We've been talking on the ITE Talks Transportation podcast with Michael Klein, the founder and CEO of Klein & Associates, as well as the author of an article in the February issue of the ITE Journal, The Transformation of the Parking Industry. Mike, thanks so much for being our guest. It was my pleasure, Bernie. Thank you very much for having me on.